Happy Mother's Day once again to all of you moms. And uh, we uh, love you. We have benefited and continue to benefit enormously from our own moms. And it turns out that even moms that are not our own bless us in, in a number of ways. We all kind of, uh, well, speaking as a man, as a husband, need a little bit of help from the occasional mom. So. <laughs> Uh, we praise God for you moms, and um, I'm thinking particularly this morning of uh, those who would love to be a mom and, uh, and uh, don't get to be, and uh, we think of you as well, as well as those who are uh, experiencing their first Mother's Day without their mother, and uh, that's, a, that's a sad, sad thing and a very difficult loss, and our hearts go out to you. We are going to be uh, working through uh, Genesis today, it's uh, nothing new. We've been working through it for some time, but today there's going to be a particular emphasis. If you've got your bulletin, you can take, it out, take out the, the notes there, uh, which you can see entitled Founding Mothers. And uh, my intention today is to go through Genesis in a little bit different way than we are used to. But if you will open to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, and I want to read just a couple of verses. The Lord here speaking to the serpent who had brought doubt and temptation into the garden and had addressed Eve. Verse 15. The Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we quiet our hearts before you as a congregation this morning. We recognize that even as we look all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and we look back to the beginning of our race, we look back to the beginning of sin in this world, and we can think even beyond that to the creation of all things, we recognize that you alone are God. We recognize that you have graciously created us. You didn't need to do that, but you did, and here we are. We recognize that you have graciously communicated yourself to us in creation and in your word. We recognize that you have blessed us in innumerable ways in our lives, that we get to enjoy the sunshine, relationships, love, and you have blessed us in countless ways by means of our mothers. And so we rejoice and we thank you that you have blessed us in such ways. And Father, we rejoice even more 
And we are even more thankful that you have given us Jesus, your Son, so that we, by faith in him, can be reconciled to you. Father, as we open your word and we take a very quick tour through Genesis and beyond, we pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would help us to focus. Pray that the distractions of life would not creep into our next few minutes together, that the things that we bring with us in our minds, memories from what has gone on this past week or is going on in our lives, or the things that even now uh, we are concerned might happen or are happening in our lives, or uh, fears about things in the future, that we would be able to set those things aside, not because they are unimportant, but because those things become better understood in the light of your word. Because we need to pause and look at your word and see what you have to say, and from there, we live our lives. From there, we deal with our past and our present and our future. And so as we have your word open and as we spend these next few minutes together, we do ask that you would bless our time, that you would work on our hearts by your spirit, even as your word is open. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're going to uh, do a very quick tour through Genesis and looking at various of the mothers that we find in the book of Genesis. One of the uh, great um, uh, lies of our time is that Christianity is somehow oppressive to women, that it holds women down, that it uh, downplays uh, the roles of, of mothers or, uh, or other women, and it's just not the case, particularly when you contrast with uh, surrounding cultures and all that, uh, that went on in these various cultures. And then you look at Scripture, you see that that women are honored. You see that, uh, that women are significant, are extremely important. We have seen as we've looked through the book of Genesis that God has spoken to women and that uh, the role of woman in, uh, in the Bible is much more significant than the world would have us believe. And so I think today's uh, very brief study is going to uh, illustrate that for us. Uh, my purpose in looking at uh, the founding mothers, of course, is because it's Mother's Day. And uh, so, you know, I think traditionally you'd preach on Proverbs 31 or something like that, but I don't like to be all that traditional, so I thought I would stay in Genesis and look at various of the mothers uh, that, that occur in this book. And of course, in the very beginning, the first mother uh, that we look at is Eve, that we saw was mother of all the living. Who is Eve, the mother of all the living? Well, really, to understand who she is, we need to go back to chapter 2. And, and we see that this is the very beginning. I mean, we're only chapter 2 in the whole Bible, and, uh, and God has created man. But then in verse 18 of chapter 2, we see, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It's not good for him to be alone. Something's lacking. Something is incomplete. Uh, he needs something else, so I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. And so, of course, we have uh, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, etc., and brings them to Adam. And the idea is that he is, he, Adam is looking and saying, no, that's not the one. I'll call that a giraffe, but that's not my helper. And this one is a hippopotamus, and, and, uh, and that's not my helper either. And looks at all of them and finds that none of them are suitable helpers for him. And so we see in verse 21, 
The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So that's the very beginning of woman. That's where she comes from. She, she meets a very great need that Adam, who, who, uh, who was sinless and, and, and uh, a fresh creation and, and whatnot, yet there was something lacking. And so to meet that lack, to meet that need, the Lord uh, does this miracle and fashions the woman from the rib, presents the woman to Adam, and he recognizes immediately how yeah, the giraffe wasn't it and the hippopotamus wasn't it. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. And so he recognizes the, the identity between the two, recognizes that, uh, that relationship. And so uh, that's how we end the creation account. Well, uh, of course, the book doesn't end there, unfortunately, but we see in chapter 3 and verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than the other, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the serpent creeps into the garden and he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. So this very first woman who was created to meet a very particular need and, and she's rejoiced over uh, by Adam and she's a very special creation by God and yet she's the one to whom the serpent comes and brings the temptation and we notice of course the nature of the temptation. Did God really say that? Because the implication is that that's a little kooky. Can you really believe God? Did, did God say such a thing? We've discussed Genesis chapter 3, but you can see how the serpent is coming and, and causing doubt. He is, he is creating doubt about God's word. And, of course, that temptation comes to the woman, and uh, she wrestles with it for a time, and then she eventually gives in, and then Adam, who is standing there by her, he also gives in, and they both sin. They both, both take of the fruit that had been forbidden to them. And so there's going to be judgment. And God comes on the scene and He's rendering judgment. He's, uh, he's responding to the sin that they have committed. In verse 16, we have the Lord speaking to the woman. In verse 16, He said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Things don't look good. Here's, here's the, the first woman, and she has gone through this situation where now sin has entered the picture, and God renders a judgment, and that judgment is childbearing is going to be very painful. It's going to be very tough. There's going to be struggle within your own body regarding childbirth, etc., and there's going to be struggle within your own relationship in your relationship with your husband. That's the consequence of sin as it affects her. And so right at the very beginning, there are only two people on the earth, and you see both of them infected by this sin problem. What's going to happen? It doesn't look good for them. It looks like uh, she has received a curse. It looks like she is destined to live out a life under God's uh, enmity, God's hand of judgment. And that's what we would come away with if it weren't for, for example, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve 
because she was the mother of all living. That she who was the the catalyst, the one by whom sin came to Adam, the one, uh, the, the one who, who, who has her own part to play in this sin problem that the, that the world carries, seems like she should be judged, seems like she should be under God's hand, and in, in some ways she was, but Adam recognizes that her name is Eve, the mother of all living. There's going to be life come from her, not just doom and gloom, not just uh, the difficulty that we see uh, throughout the rest of Genesis chapter 3, but life will come from her. And we will see later, I'll give you a hint even now, that we will see later that not only will life in the form of many living humans come from her, but uh, the, the curse upon the serpent that we read at the beginning in verse 15 of chapter 3 gives a promise and gives a hint of life to come where the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Hidden in that little kernel of statement that God makes in the presence of the man and the woman but makes as a judgment upon the serpent, he says there will be a seed of the woman. And she, the, the, the seed of that woman, uh, the seed will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And so we look at Eve, the mother of all living, and that kind of starts the story for us, the story really of Genesis and not just Genesis, the story of God's people in the Bible, but more than that, the story really of all of creation and particularly all of uh, redemptive history. And so before we move on to the next mother, I want to make an observation. What, what do we learn about us? What do we learn for us just by this very brief look at Eve? Well, first of all, we need to be prepared to believe God and not the tempter when the tempter comes in and says, did God really say? We need to believe God's Word. We need to love God's Word. In our day and age, it is uh, extremely popular. It's, the, it's all the rage right now to, uh, to sort of sneer at Christians for believing what the Bible says about sexuality, for example. Did God really say that? Because if he did, he's clearly passe. He clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. He's clearly someone you can ignore if God really said that about sexuality. We need to be aware as Eve was not, that the tempter will come and he will sneak in and, and in a very convincing way at exactly that point where we are the weakest and say, did God really say that? We need to be prepared. We need to know what God's Word says. We need to believe what God's Word says. And we need to love what God's Word says so that when that serpent comes in, we are prepared. Well, that's what we learn about us. What do we learn about God? If you think of who God is in this story, he has created, he's done all these things. He's, he's created the man, and then seeing that the man was lacking, he created all the animals, and that was insufficient. So he creates the woman and puts the two together. What a glorious thing, this wonderful picture. God has done all of that. God has blessed them in every way. God has provided them the perfect uh, habitat, the perfect environment, perfect opportunities. He has provided all that, and yet they have sinned against him. And what does he do? Yes, he renders judgment. He is just. And he promises mercy. He promises 
redemption. What we learn about God, even in a very brief look at Eve, is that He is merciful and He loves to redeem. There's a second mother we want to look at. She's the one that we are, uh, have been uh, looking at for some time. Actually, I looked up the date of when we started talking about Sarah, who is the mother of the promised child. We started talking about Sarah and Abraham in earnest back in September. So, moving right along, right? Sarah we're very familiar with, the mother of the promised child. And so you turn in your Bible to uh, chapter 17, verses 15 through 19. Before we read there, we, we kind of bring ourselves up to speed of of, of what we learn about Sarah. One of the first things we learn about Sarah, all the way back in chapter 11, by the way, is that she's barren. That's one of the first things we learn, who her husband is and that she's barren. And then we watch this, this barren married woman as she gets older and older and older, which, which goes the opposite direction from uh, being uh, reproductive, right? And so she gets older and older. That's a, another thing we learn about her. We observe various things about her character, but she's a barren woman who is now an old barren woman. And then we read a promise in these words in chapter 17, verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Remember this barren, old woman. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, and he goes on and talks about his other son. But God is confirming there that, yes, this woman, the first thing we learned about her is that she's barren. And then we watch her as she ages. And then we see God come on the scene and say, okay, now that she's old enough and barren enough for you to really get the message, you're going to have a son by her this time next year and call his name Isaac. And, of course, we've continued on and read the story, and we've looked at how God miraculously accomplished, accomplished that. We saw how Isaac came on the scene in, 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 in an impossible way to a man who's 100, to a woman who's 90, and they've been barren their whole marriage. And now the promised child is given. So what do we learn about us by this very, very brief look at Sarah? Let's be firmly convinced that God keeps his promises even when it looks like he hasn't or won't. Let's believe that God keeps his promises. At various times, I have given Abraham a hard time. I've given Sarah a hard time, and at various times, they deserve it. One thing that is amazing is to trace the promise made early on and to see God become clearer and clearer in his explanation of exactly what it means. And that this woman would bear a child at such an age is instructive for me about believing God's promises, even when they look to be impossible. 
You know, if I were to promise you or I were to uh, tell you that in July it's going to be hot in Nevada, you'd probably believe me, right? And that wouldn't be a stretch. It's the promise that is impossible, that is hard for us to believe. But it's the promise that is impossible where God gets the most glory when He keeps it. I was thinking of what promise I might direct us towards. Uh, Of all the promises in the Bible that God will keep and God keeps His promises, one of those I think that fits our time and fits many of your circumstances would be the words we read in Isaiah 42 and verse 3 that speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the servant of God to come, which Jesus Uh, uh, it refers to Jesus in the book of Matthew where it says of this Messiah a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench you feel like a bruised reed in your life? do you feel like a faintly burning wick? there are times when our faith is just just burning brightly and everybody can see it and it draws people and they wonder how how can you believe God in such a time and 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 you wonder of yourself how can I have such confidence in God despite this opposition or this difficulty or this this problem that I'm going through how is it well it's a yeah sometimes faith is so strong it's noteworthy and people can look from without and they can see it wow that person (laughs) it's amazing how that person is trusting God in the midst of this difficult time we've got folks in our congregation who have been battling illness for for years, and their faith burns like that, that each of us looks at them and says, that's amazing. Sometimes our faith burns like that. Sometimes our faith is more like a a smoldering wick. Do you feel like your faith is a faintly burning wick or that you yourself are a bruised reed beaten up by life? by circumstances, perhaps even your own decisions, your own sin. And you, you feel so weak that even if someone were to take that bruised reed and stand it up where it's folded over that you wouldn't be able to stand up straight, you're just so weak. And you think, surely I'm useless to God. Surely, surely I, I can't expect that He would strengthen me. I'm just too weak. Or my faith, if only I had stronger faith, if only I could burn brightly like like those saints who have gone before us. But instead, I I struggle with doubt. And, And instead of a brightly burning bonfire that draws attention, it's a it's a smoking wick of candle that if you blew just a little too much, it would it would die. I feel like that. Is that you? He will not break a bruised reed and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You may be at that place in your life. You may be going through that kind of difficulty. And you may think, well, I know, I know God's gentle and I know um, he's good. But, 
but I'm not sure he can strengthen me in this situation. I'm not sure, I'm not sure he can fan into flame this tiny little ember that you can't even see that it's burning. You can just see a little bit of smoke. Folks, God does that. He strengthens the bruised reed. He fans into flame that, that gently, slowly, poorly burning wick. If that's you, you need to believe that promise. That is our Savior. Let's believe the promises of God. There's a fabulous book, if you want to read it, called A Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs, a Puritan. I recommend you, um, you know, get a, a, a washcloth to wipe the sweat off your brow and that you set aside some good time to read it. But it is nourishment and encouragement and life to your soul because that is our Savior. Well, what do we learn about God? Well, clearly God is faithful and he possesses unlimited power to keep his promises. The story of Sarah paints that very clearly for us. We move on, though. Sarah's not the last of the mothers in Genesis. There's another to follow after her, and that, of course, is Rebekah, the mother of Israel. Rebekah, the mother of Israel. So we keep turning a couple more chapters, and... We see in verse in chapter 25, the generation has moved on. Isaac has taken a wife, Rebekah, that we've met in our regular journey uh, going through Genesis. And there has been a promise made, a prophecy made that the older will serve the younger. She's pregnant with twins, and they're doing war within her, as it were. She's pregnant with twins, and she hears that one will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger, which is abnormal. Normally, it would be the younger that would serve the older because the older is the firstborn and gets the inheritance and the, the place of primacy, etc. But here's the promise that the, the older will serve the younger. And she overhears a conversation, having known that, she overhears a conversation between her husband, now that she's given birth, uh, she has these two sons and they are grown men. You look at verse uh, chapter 27, and uh, if you read that paragraph 5 through 13, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Isaac had said to Esau, hey, it's time for me to bless you. I'm getting old. I want to pass on the blessing, so go hunt for me and get some food and bring it back, and we'll have this ceremony, and really, I will pass on leadership. Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, the other son, the younger, the, her favorite, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, so here's Rebecca's plan to the younger of the two sons. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them, from them delicious food for your father such as he loves, and, he shall bring it to your, and you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. 
Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother, Rebekah, said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So Rebekah, having heard God's words that the older of these twins that she bore will serve the younger of the twins that she bore, she seems to want to bring about God's will by her deception and disobedience. Now, it may have been that she just loved uh, Jacob, who will be Israel, loved him more than Esau. That's possible. But I think it likely that she's remembering what she heard about the older serving the younger, and she sees a way that she can accomplish this, even though it means deceiving her husband, even though it means talking her son into lying to his dad, even though it means concocting this whole scheme to steal the blessing from the older to give it to the younger, even though it means all of those things, because it will accomplish what she thinks God's purpose is, she goes ahead and she does it. So Rebecca, we've met her in our story as we've been going through Genesis, and she's exemplary in a lot of ways, but she's pretty conniving when it comes down to it in some other ways. What do we learn from Rebecca's story, the mother of Israel? Well, regarding us, what we learn about us, let's not try to help God be God. A very kind and thoughtful wife once said to her husband, what can I do to help you feel more manly? Now, she was a kind and thoughtful wife, but the husband answered, nothing. I am a man. I don't need need help being a man. God doesn't need help being God. He doesn't need to be helped along in resolving uh, the conflicts or the problems that are before him. He's made a promise, and how will it come about? I don't know. I guess I better break the rules a little bit to bring it about. We don't need to help God be God. And that is what we learn about him. What do we learn about God? He doesn't need human help. He is God. He is accomplishing his purposes. He doesn't need our assistance in that he can even use sin to accomplish his purposes, like in this story. We don't have to defend God. What we need to do is understand who he says he is, believe it, and live in light of it. We don't have to defend God. We don't have to help him be God. That's our third mother, our fourth mother is Rachel, who is the mother of a Savior. Rachel, the mother of a Savior. Her story is very interesting. It's hard to go through it very quickly, but if you will turn to Genesis chapter 30 as we keep moving on through. Jacob, who will be Israel, Jacob, had traveled to Padanaram. We've read about that. That's where his mother's from, to escape his brother. He was uh, in trouble with his brother and in, in great danger, and so he goes off to his, uh, to his home people, to where his people are from, particularly his mom's people. He, he arrives there in, in Padanaram. 
He shows up to the well where the shepherds were gathering their flocks and it was about time for them to uh, water the flocks. And while he's there, he's asking if he's in the right place. Do you know Laban? Do you know Nahor? Do you, uh, do you know these people? While he's doing that, he meets Rachel. And Jacob is young and single and, and uh, looking for a wife and he sees Rachel and he uh, kisses her on the first date, which is amazing. You read this story and people didn't kiss her that way. But he kissed her, it says. I noted it, that he kissed her. So he, 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 she catches his eye. And so he goes to her dad, and he does a deal with the dad where he says, all right, your daughter Rachel is something else. They ultimately agree that he, Jacob, will work seven years to earn her hand in marriage deal. And the days went by like nothing because he just loved her. But when the time came for the wedding to happen, you remember the story, didn't go so well. It wasn't quite what he thought would happen. We see in verse 18 of of chapter uh, 29, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for for your younger daughter, Rachel, And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man, so, you know, stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. But when it came time for the wedding, they were married, and Jacob goes in to his wife. He finds that it's not Rachel, but it's Leah. Laban has pulled a fast one on him and switched the sisters so that now Jacob is married to Leah, who's the older sister. And she had soft eyes. I don't know what that means, but apparently it's an unattractive thing in this culture. I, don't, I have no idea what that means. But now he's married to her. And now he's incensed, and he's, he's wondering what's going to happen. Well, so he goes to Laban, has a discussion with Laban, Laban says, oh, yeah, I, did, I forgot to tell you that in our culture, it's not normal to marry off the younger before the older, so surprise. But I'll tell you what, if you'll serve me another seven years. And so they make a deal that Jacob will serve Laban another seven years for the hand of Rachel. So he finally gets what he wants, and uh, he serves the seven years, and they're married, and, and all that stuff's happened. They finally get to... Uh, to be married, and actually over time he's married to Leah and to Rachel and to Leah's maidservant and to Rachel's maidservant. And he begins to have children right and left. And all of those women have children, numerous children, but Rachel, poor Rachel, was barren. By the way, she's the third barren woman we've talked about. Sarah was barren. I didn't mention, but Rebecca was barren. And Rachel is barren. Interesting that three of these five are barren. But she finally gets pregnant. She finally has a child. She's able to conceive, and she bears Joseph. And Joseph is a beloved son. He's a very special son, and you know the story of the relationship between, uh, between um, Joseph and his dad, that his parents just love him and dote on him, and, and it causes problems with all the other brothers. You remember how the story of Joseph goes, that the other brothers hate him, the other brothers uh, decide they're going to kill him, and then they decide not to. Let's just sell him into slavery. 
So they sell him into slavery. He goes down into Egypt, remember, as a slave. He's serving there as a slave. While he's there serving as a slave, uh, there is a false accusation of, of, uh, of um, basically a rape. He's convicted of that. He's thrown into prison. And in prison, he's got an opportunity uh, with those who uh, could help him, but they don't help him. They forget about him, and he's just stuck in prison for years. That's the Joseph story. That's what happens with Joseph. But, of course, that's just the buildup, right? That's because we know that eventually Joseph does come to the attention of Pharaoh. He interprets a dream for him, and Pharaoh realizes that God is using this young man. He's very special. And so he uh, elevates him to a position of authority where he's essentially the prime minister of all of Egypt. He's, he's the one who's, who's running the whole country except for Pharaoh himself and Pharaoh's family. And, of course, in that process, what happens? In that process where he's in a position where he's running this country, there's a famine that begins to happen, but he has prepared the nation for it. He has prepared Egypt for it. So now they're wealthy, and they have, they have abundant food, abundant provisions, and, and people begin to sell off their property to, uh, to Egypt so that they can have food and all this. So the, 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 the Pharaoh is growing in power uh, and wealth by leaps and bounds because of Joseph's leadership. And of course, that leads to his own family, his own brothers, who sold him into slavery. They're up in the land of Canaan, and they famine strikes there as well. And of course, you know how that all plays out, that, that they end up coming down to Egypt to seek food. And there's this whole long story, and they don't realize who Joseph is, but God used Joseph to provide for Egypt and to provide for all of those people around. Joseph, the, 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 the child of Rachel, the barren woman, the, she's loved, but she's barren. And God uses him to provide, and ultimately he makes himself known to his brothers. And so you see the full picture that, that God, is, God is at work and, and powerfully doing things that we would never expect to provide for his people. What do we learn about us? Well, part of the story that we don't really, uh, we blew past is that Rachel died before she got to see God use her son. She died at the birth of her second son. Never got to see this whole story unfold. And very often, we don't get to see the fruit of our labors. We labor and we toil and we're in an uh, immediate, you know, instant gratification kind of culture. We don't see fruit right away. We move on. Or perhaps we're faithful and labor and labor. We don't see fruit, and it's kind of discouraging. But here's, a, here's an instance where had she known, she should have been dis- uh, very encouraged because of what God did through Joseph. What do we learn about God in this story? Well, there are a lot of things we could learn about God, but, but all of that time while while Joseph is going down and down and down and down. God is actually at work because he's going to raise him up and up and up to put him in a position where he will be providing for a huge portion of the entire world and most importantly, providing for his own people. God did that. God was at work in that situation. His plan is broader than we can imagine. His scope is is more than we can ever understand. His wisdom is beyond what we can comprehend. 
God has things well in hand, and we can take comfort. His counsel shall stand, and he will accomplish his purpose. So you may be, you may be in, you know, the jail cell, waiting to be sprung out, waiting. To, God's plan is large. His counsel shall stand. He will accomplish all his purposes. And there's one more mother we want to look at. And this mother was by no means barren. This is Leah, mother of the seed. And this is where we're going to land. We'll go back to chapter 29. And we see Leah. Remember, she's got soft eyes, whatever that means. No idea. Uh, but she was not the, the, the wife who was beloved. She was, you know, a, a kind of the also ran. But we see the Lord bless her greatly. She is unloved, but she is fruitful. Look at the end of chapter 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Isn't that sad? She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. So apparently her husband did not love her after Reuben. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me. Do you hear the agony? This poor woman. Because I have borne him three sons, therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. Leah, who is mother of the seed. We read at the beginning. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And we saw that right there, the very moment of the fall, there was a promise made where God, speaking judgment upon the serpent, said that judgment will come by means of the seed of the woman. Where he will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, he'll crush your head. That promise was made all the way back then, and so we expect the seed. We, we, we think about children in different ways in, in light of Genesis, and, 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 and here we have this woman who is unloved. Yes, she was the first wife, but she was last, wasn't she? She was hated. She was unloved. Her husband wasn't even attached to her. But God blesses her with child after child after child. And finally, the fourth son, Judah, Instead of bemoaning her sorrows, she praised, this time I will praise the Lord. And so she called him Judah. What's so special about Judah? If you look at the life of Judah, uh, he's, he's kind of a mixed bag. He's got this whole situation with, with uh, sexual immorality that is a, a significant portion of, uh, of his life story, we see that he's, he's a really problematic character. But the longer we watch him, the longer we watch his story, and we're, I'm not going to take the time to go through it, but, but you will see that he begins to take more and more of a role of prominence in the family. He's the one who, uh, when, when Jacob, whose name is Israel now, 
is afraid to send Benjamin, his youngest son, down into Egypt, lest Benjamin be captured, lest Benjamin be killed, lest Benjamin be taken away from him. It's Judah who says, I will stand surety for him. I will be the substitute. If something happens to me or to him, blame it on me. Take it out on me. I will stand in the place of him. So we see Judah begin to grow, and he, he, he comes more and more to the forefront of what's going on in, uh, in his family. But he's not a superhero. He's not a wonderful guy. He's still got his, his problems. He's not all that great. But you see a promise made in chapter 49. Turn there. He's growing in prominence. He's... He's growing in character, it seems like, but you turn to Genesis chapter 49, and at the end of his life, Jacob, whose name is Israel, he's on his deathbed. He's about to die, and so he's blessing his sons. He's passing on blessing to them, and in, the, in doing so, he's prophesying over them. And in prophesying over Judah, we read this particularly in chapter 49, verses 9 and 10, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The ruler's staff will not depart from between his feet. He is the one. It is through Judah that the seed, the ultimate seed, will come. And so when we look back at Joseph, down in the land and God raising him to a position of prominence, and we think about the fact that he took care of all of Egypt, and really he took care of, of all of his father's household by providing for their needs. But what is the point? Which, what, what was the greatest point? What was his greatest victory? What was Joseph's greatest usefulness? He preserved Judah's life. Because it will be through Judah that there will be another king who will come, King David. And King David, who will receive prophecy from God as well, where God says, I will establish through you your covenant or your, your throne, your kingdom that will last forever through you. And David came from Judah. And that promise made in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 points to someone future, points to a future seed. And when Jesus would come on the scene, he says, that's me. He's the son of David. He's the one whose kingdom is established forever. He's the seed. He's the one that was promised back in 315 who will crush the head of the serpent at the expense of the crushing of his own heel, but he will have victory. The sin that entered the world all the way back in chapter 3, that came into the picture through the very first couple and has tainted everything since, and the serpent that brought that sin finds its ultimate demise in the seed of the woman who crushes his head. And that seed of the woman is Jesus. 
Jesus, who lived a life of perfect obedience, who didn't follow after our first parents, but instead was obedient, kept God's law perfectly, always, resisted the temptation of the devil, unlike Adam and Eve had done, unlike the nation of Israel had done in, in wandering in the wilderness, resisted temptation, stood strong, obeyed God, and yet went to the cross, the place where his heel would be crushed. Figurative language meaning horrible damage was done to him. But that damage is not the end of the story. He was hung on a cross. He, he went there and he was, he, he was killed. Not for his own sin, but for yours and mine. But he was killed. It seemed as if maybe he's not the seed. I thought the seed was just supposed to have his heel crushed. But here it seems like he's dead. It seems like the seed had his head crushed. But of course, God raised him from the dead on the third day, demonstrating that though the wound was, was horrific and though the wound ultimately did lead to that death, yet God raised him from the dead, showing that in the end it was, it was a heel crushing. But what damage was done to sin? What damage was done to the enemy? His head's crushed. His reign is finished. Yeah, he's, 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 in the, he's still active, but it's death throes. His end is sure. It's been accomplished, and it, it will be brought to final completion. And you and I, who are so plagued by sin, you and I who, who feel the effects of sin in our, in our, in our bodies, in our lives, in our relationships. We read about it in the news. We see it in our family. We see it all over. We who live in this world and, and suffer under sin and have our own sin that we contribute for which we are guilty. What about us? The Bible says if we will put our faith in Christ and what he's done, like Isaac did, the one we baptized just a few minutes ago, looking to Christ, trusting in Him. We find that our sins have been placed upon Him, punished in Him to the fullest. And we find that by that same faith, His righteousness, His life of resisting sin that we haven't done, being obedient to God's will perfectly that we haven't done, is credited to us as if we had done it. And so by faith, we we see the benefits, we inherit the benefits of the serpent's head having been crushed, sin having been defeated, death having been defeated by what Christ did. Christ who sits on David's throne. Christ who is the heir of the Davidic covenant, the one to whom it pointed. Christ who came through Judah. Christ who came from Genesis 3.15. Through whom we have freedom. We have victory over sin that entered the picture on page 3 in your Bible. A quick look at the mothers in Genesis retells the story of redemption, 
points us to Christ yet again. Points us to the fact that you and I are more like Eve than Jesus. We are more like the sinners in our story and the worst sin that they did than we are like the seed of the woman. And yet, by faith in Christ, you and I get to inherit His inheritance. What is due to Him is given to every one of us who is in Christ. And so my plea with you this morning would be that you would trust in Christ, that you could receive that inheritance, even that we see traced all the way through from Eve to Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. That's the blessing I want for you. Let's pray. Father, we have gone very, very quickly through 50 chapters of, of Genesis. And we have looked very briefly at, at these mothers, and yet we have seen the thread of your redemptive work. And we, who have faith in Christ, get to bear the benefits of that thread. We get to be those who are counted in Christ, that, that find that our sin has been punished in Him, find that His righteousness has been given to us, find that we get to be called your children by faith. I pray, Father, that uh, everyone this morning would call on the name of the Lord, whether they have before or not, that they would be saved. I pray that you would grant us the inheritance of Christ by faith in Him. Father, we are grateful for this quick tour. We're grateful for these mothers, and we are grateful ultimately and most of all for the seed of the woman who crushed the head of that serpent. Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Happy Mother's Day once again. And I wanted to remind you there will be no evening service tonight. So enjoy time with your family. Celebrate your mom. Remember your mom if you don't have her anymore. But God bless you all, and you're dismissed. <laughs>